gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we read that, just a simple diagnostic question. How is your walk with God? How is your walk with God? Do you daily stroll with your heavenly Father like a friend down the street? Do you sometimes pour out your heart to Him in anguish and even in heartache? Do you walk with God? Do you chat your day, even just walking through what the day has been, both the good and the bad? Do you confess your struggles and failings? Do you smile at Him and do you smile with Him and rejoice in the presence of Christ? Do you walk confidently in the place that Christ has purchased for you, my brothers and sisters. You see, the cross purchased for you a place at the side of God to walk with Him, to fellowship with Him, to, to enjoy His presence. And as amazing as it is that we get to walk with God, perhaps even more amazing still is that God desires to walk with us. And that as much delight that we can have in walking with God, God's delight in walking with us surpasses that still. How is your walk with God, though? Does your life evidence a walk with God? Are you known as someone who walks with God? 400 years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, wrote, it is the great excellency and commendations of a godly man to walk with God. It's the highest testimony that can be given to anyone that he walks with God. Walking with God is a high excellency. And whoever has this testimony has the highest testimony that can be given unto a man in this world, that he walks with God. And there is no greater commendation that can be given to you then that man or that woman walks with God. Christianity is not just simply a designation or an identity or a label that we put on ourselves. It's a way of life. It is a way of life that comes through the work of Christ that enables us to be able to walk with God, to stroll with God, to laugh with God, to cry with Him, and to see Him as our friend instead of as our judge to see Him as our Father instead of as our enemy. Walking with God. The greatest joy that we can enjoy. And it is critical that we walk with God. You see, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Timothy, he's burdened for the church in Ephesus. Now, if you'll read through the book of Acts, the, book, the city of Ephesus actually takes center stage along with Jerusalem as one of the key cities where the Christians first broke out across the Mediterranean. Yet at the city of Ephesus, we have there some battles that they faced. And Paul is concerned that the Christians in Ephesus walk with God 
well, that they would live out the living Christ and that Christ would be clearly seen in them. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul confronted leaders who were confusing people into vain discussions instead of a sincere walk with Christ. How easy it is to debate theology than it is to walk obediently. And these leaders were using all their scholastic and oratory skill, confusing the church, and Paul confronts them, and he reminds that the conduct of a Christian should walk in a certain way, and that the walk of a Christian should not be marked by profanity, violence, murders, sexual immorality, homosexuality, enslavement, liars, perjuring, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, chapter 1, verse 10. Now, the Christian's walk is supposed to be marked by specific things that reflect the very heart and character of God. He's reminding people of the gospel, reminding them of, of grace. Now, gospel, if you're new to the faith, or maybe you're just coming in today, the gospel, when we say that, it's the good news of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. And grace is what he freely gives to us in salvation. You know that our hearts are desperately wired to want to work for our salvation? We are desperate in and of ourselves for works-based salvation. We want to prove our salvation. We want to work for our salvation. We want to be good enough. And so we yo-yo in and out of every week like, well, I had a good week. I'm pretty good. I had a bad week. I hope Jesus loves me. Instead of the gospel, the free gift of grace through the work of Jesus Christ is that regardless of how my week goes, the love of Christ rests on me unchanged. What a beautiful thing. Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus, don't lose sight of that. It's foundational to your walk. He even confronts certain leaders who had corrupted the faith instead of walking with God as they ought. He confronts Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith. And brothers and sisters, beware of leaders and teachers and the negative impact they can have on, their, on your life because of their ungodly walk. They might be great teachers. They might be great orators. But does their life match it? In chapter 2, Paul challenges the people to walk in prayer to walk in proclamation of the gospel and the indiscriminatory, undiscriminatory proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. Reminders to men and women in the church to walk in a way that enhances worship, not distracts from it. Men were coming into the church angry and divisive and quarrelsome and women coming in in vanity and pomp and to be seen. Paul then reminds Timothy and the leaders, make sure that you make space for men and women to be disciples of Christ, that they should walk in Christ. And he challenges women to walk in the glories of womanhood. We looked at that for five weeks about a month ago. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. If you're new here, go back and listen to that five series. It'll give you, five-part series, it'll give you a good foundation. But then the question naturally comes, what does a godly leader in the church then look like? Not Hymenaeus, not Alexander, not these other men who are distracting the people, or these men and women that are off on their own trying to promote themselves instead of Christ. Well, what does a godly leader look like? 
Well, you have to look at his walk. Chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 13. Saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and continue verse 14 down to the end of verse 15. Paul writes, I come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. May God bless the reading of his word and all God's people said. Practical questions that come out of this passage, though. What is Paul's purpose in chapter 3? Why is he giving us? Where are we in the flow of Paul's letter? Why bring this argument now? And how should we understand this list of qualifications? What is an overseer? I know the term pastor, but what is overseer? What does an overseer do versus a pastor or an elder or a shepherd or a bishop? All of these words used in Scripture. What is a deacon? What can a deacon do? We know previously that women by role should not be the elder or the overseer pastor of the church, that qualified men without desire should not be an elder because they don't have a desire. But also unqualified men should not be an elder because why? They are unqualified. Three categories that should not fulfill the role of elder overseer. But what about deacon? Can a woman be a deacon? How does a biblical form of governance look like? And how is heritage governed? You know, just some practical questions. We're going to take the next six weeks, and we're going to walk through a general ecclesiology of the church. Now, ecclesia, the Greek word for church, ologia, knowledge of, or the study of. So, ecclesiology, a study of the church. And we want to look at some various aspects for the objective of having a good understanding of how God's church is supposed to work and the frameworks that are given in Scripture. So, today, we're going to look at general evidences of a walk with God. 
and see that these characteristics, they, they paint a portrait of Christ when they are lived well. Next week, we'll look at elders who lead the church are to walk with God and to lead others to walk with God. The week after that, we'll look at deacons, helpers who serve the church as they walk with God. And then a biblical framework for church governance. We'll also look at, as we come down to verse 14 and verse 15, try to reclaim a picture of the dignity and the honor of what it means to be the church. Let's reclaim that vision. I think it's been lost often in evangelicalism today. And then let's talk about being a confessional church, that last little confession that we read there in chapter 3. But the big idea today, here's the big idea for today, is that a godly walk paints a Christly portrait. A godly walk paints a Christly portrait. Hence, why church leadership must have a godly walk if they're going to proclaim Christ well. Number one, walking with God. Let's talk about that. I let off asking the question, how is your walk with God? But what is this concept of walking with God? Again, it is the highest excellency that can be said of you that you walked with God. I hope in my epitaph it reads, Nathan Smith, a man who walked with God. If you read through the Old Testament, do you know that it is one of the most common designations of a faithful individual before God? I mean, even in Eden, what did Adam and Eve do before the fall? What did they do? They, they, they walked with God. They walked with him in the cool in the evening. They, they chatted with him. They talked about the names of the animals that had been given. They talked about the sunset and the beauty of creation. They walked with God. In Genesis 5.22, we are introduced to Enoch. Twice, the only things that are said about this man are two things. And he repeats them again and again. Enoch walked with God. And then again, Enoch walked with God. In Genesis chapter 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And it says, Noah walked with God. Genesis 24, 40, Abraham said, the Lord before whom I have walked. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4, the command to the Israelites, you shall walk after the Lord your God. You don't just know him. Quote some things to him. Just attend church on Sunday, be done with it. No, it's, it's a walk. The psalmist writes, before you I have walked in the Old Testament, you'll see that it says, I walked before the face of God. I walked in the presence of God. I walked with God. This man walked all the days of his life before God. And in contrast to that, especially read through the kings, the kings who walked after their fathers instead of walking after God. In the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, how is your walk? Is your walk worthy of the calling that you've been clothed with? 
Or you have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven and you're trying to kind of straddle the line, makes for a really awkward walk as you're pulled from side to side. Walking with God. Now, you cannot walk with God, by the way. You cannot walk with Him of your own accord. You cannot walk with Him in your own effort. You cannot walk with God unless He has called you to His side through His Son. You've been invited to walk with God. But first you must recognize your unworthiness to walk with him. But that unworthiness is overcome in the worthiness of Christ. So brother and sister, do you confess your unworthiness? Do you confess your sin? That you are not worthy to approach God on your own terms? That it is only through the work of Christ? If you confess and have confessed, then you have access, come to the Father's arms, who says, come, come unto me, walk with me. Walk hand in hand with the sent, with the creator in the position where Jesus Christ himself walks. And this is one of the mysteries of the faith, that Jesus Christ occupies a particular position beside his Father, to have access and proximity and communion is reserved only for the Son. But for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ on the cross, they're a sinner, he is their only Savior, then we are hidden in his death by his blood in the Son. We are in Christ. Therefore, we walk with the Father in the position where Christ himself walks with the Father. That's why we can have uninhibited communion. That's why we have Romans 5, direct access into the heavenly places. You've been clothed. Now walk with God. Now walking entails devotion, desire, discipline, understanding and reading God's word, communion with God. It is walking with God. Now, what are the specifics of a genuine walk? So number one, we looked at just generally walking with God. Number two, the specifics of a genuine walk are actually outlined here in verse 1 to 7. Now, next week, we will apply these more specifically to the role of the elder. But this week, let's look at it in a general sense, because shouldn't these characteristics be found in all followers of Christ? This should be characteristic of the Christian these are basic fruits of godliness. Now, some of these, again, we're going to apply more specifically towards the role of elder next week. But look at these statements, these evidences of a godly walk. First of all, in verse 1, the one who desires the office of an elder desires a noble task. And I want to say that if you are in Christ, then you have sanctified affections. He sanctifies your affections. He gives you desires that the world does not understand. Here, it's the desire to occupy a position to get up Sunday after Sunday and read from an old book and give the Word of God to a people who sometimes want it, sometimes don't, and sometimes you want to give it, and sometimes you don't want to give it. Who wants that position? And the world looks at it and goes, you guys are crazy. But you see, in Christ, our affections are retooled. 
Some of you has given a sanctified affection for fellow engineers in your workplace or fellow moms or fellow professionals, wherever you are, men and women, to be a missionary right where you're at. But He changes our desires. There's a desire to be blameless. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But I sure desire to be perfect. Not in some sort of religious arrogance, but rather I just want to be holy like my Father is holy. Covenant keeping. You see that verse 2? Above reproach and then husband of one wife. That sees covenants as something beautiful and worthy and godly and worth protecting. A sound mind. A disciplined mind. A mind that is serious and focused. Not, when I say serious, by the way, I don't mean funless. Someone who doesn't have fun. Someone who doesn't smile. I'm talking about a serious mind, a disciplined mind. Be careful. With devices and entertainment at all of our fingertips, it is easy for the mind to become just passive and absorbing instead of sound and disciplined. Self-controlled, subjugated passions. That's what self-control means. There's passions that my flesh wants, but I'm working to subjugate them, to subdue them, to bring them under the power of Christ. Respectable. See that in verse 2? This is a life worthy of emulation. Should we not all live lives worthy of emulating? And shouldn't our lives be hospitable, invitational, warm, reaching out? Most of the time we wait for someone else to be hospitable. Well, I'll be hospitable if they are. That's not what Scripture commands us to do and be. It's invitational, drawing people in. able to teach. Now again, we'll apply this more specifically to the role of elder, and we're going to get into some of the technical aspects of the role next week. But in a general sense, should we not all endeavor to be able to instruct someone else in matters of the faith? Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament, we have no record of them holding any official position in the church. Likely they had some influence, but Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos into their household and they instructed him in the ways of the Lord. And Apollos became one of the greatest preachers of the New Testament era. Not a drunkard. Don't be dominated by substances, whatever they may be. Not violent, but gentle. An attitude, a demeanor, a true heart that is gentle. Peacemaker. Someone who's not quarrelsome and divisive. And not in love with this world, not a lover of money. You know what a lover of money is? It's not just simply just, just the, the tactile feel of money or the, the credit card in your hand, but it's what money can give you. It's the things of the world. It's this prestige. It's the clothing. It's the vanity. It's the materials. It's the house. It's all of those things. Don't love this world. We demonstrate the presence of God in the home. Manages his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This is not submissive as in like a thumb 
And you fathers who take it that way and rule your house with an iron thumb, beware. That's not the love of Christ. We are talking, there is discipline, there are rules, but this is managing, leading. And how does the husband lead his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5? And how should the father and the mother love and lead their children even as God himself loved and led Israel? Though they went astray time and time and time again, but with patience and instruction and discipline, but also encouragement, building them up. Oh, it's easy, brothers and sisters, to come to church and to put on that Christian faith, but your household tells me a lot about who you are. What happens behind the closed doors? What your wife or your husband would say about you? What your kids would say about you? We should be the same in public as we are in private. Not mean in private and mean in public. I mean like genuine, godly in private. And hopefully the real thing also before others. Proven this, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. We have to be careful. Sometimes we assume positions or responsibilities before we have been proven or before we're ready. Now applied to the elder here, be careful of pride. Oh my goodness, how pride is so insidious and takes over our hearts. And may we also labor to be humble as a discipline. Humility is not, let me, hear, let me say this very clearly, hopefully very forcefully, because it's so important. Humility is not the berating of yourself and the proclamation of your own inadequacies. Humility is the proclamation of the adequacy of Christ. If people are walking around saying, I'm so humble, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, I'm not gifted, I'm, oh, he's so humble. No, he's just tearing himself down. True godly humility, brother and sister, is getting out of the way and say, yeah, yeah, well, praise God, but did you see Jesus? It's jumping out of the way and putting Christ front and center. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The church may be hated by the world and you may be hated by the world. But make sure you're hated by the world for the right reasons. Not because you're a cantankerous religious zealot. The world should be able to crucify us and yet be amazed. Remember, Pilate handed over Jesus to be crucified, but he was absolutely amazed, amazed at Christ. Leaders of the church are not perfect, but they must have a demonstrable, proven walk with God. These are qualities that every Christian should demonstrate. But if the job of the overseers, the elders, is to, are to lead people to walk with God, then they themselves must show these qualities, should they not? Number three, leaders must evidence a walk with God. So we're looking at walking with God, number one. Number two, the specifics of a genuine walk. And then number three, leaders must evidence a walk with God. Not, I'm a pastor because look at my education. 
The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 9, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here's Paul's list of external qualifications. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Not this, but Christ. It is not education or ministry background. I, I'm an MK from Tanzania. I got to see my parents be able to do amazing things in ministry, but that doesn't qualify me for the pastorate. I got to see people come to Christ and be a part of many of those things, but that does not qualify me as an elder of the church. I have a degree in Bible. I have a master's in business administration and MBA, which, funny enough, I never thought would be so useful as a senior pastor. I have a Master of Divinity in Ministry Leadership. I got my doctorate in expo expositional preaching, but does that matter? The question you should be asking is, am I faithful to my wife? Does my life showcase a Christly sense? Not because of pieces of paper that hang on my wall. Or because they have 30 million Twitter followers. It is not oratory, nor being fun, nor smarts, nor efficiency, but it's godliness. It's a genuine walk with God that matters. The Holy Spirit power is poured out through a godly life, not a talented one. Not flashy programs. Not a big church. But a people that walk with God. A pastor who walks with God. Leaders who walk with God. I've been away for the last four weeks in my study renewal, and I thank you for that, and I praise God for the time to be in God's Word and to read widely. But it's also a time where I'm reminded I am not indispensable. I am not as important as I think I am in my flesh. And as I inspect my own life, even the last four weeks, like that, there's still so many areas I need to grow in. Lord, give me the grace to grow, to be a man of God, to be a... Nathan Smith walked with God. Because did you know that a godly walk paints a Christly portrait, number four. A godly walk paints a Christly portrait. Your actions and the manner of your walk are brush strokes on the canvas of eternity. They are brush strokes that are painting something. What is the walk of your life painting? Is it painting a selfie? Success? Pleasure? Or do people see Jesus? 
1 Timothy 3 is not simply a list, by the way, of moral injunctions, but rather they are qualities that are first found in Christ himself. The Bible never calls us to anything that is first not found in the character of God. And so leaders, elders, pastors, the people of God, may we walk with God, may we evidence a walk with God and thereby paint portraits of Christ with our life. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the elder desires a noble task. It's a sanctified affection. But did you not know that John chapter 14, Jesus said, I do as the Father commanded me? His affections, sanctified and guided by the Father. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, we're to be above reproach. Jesus himself in Hebrews 7.26 is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. In verse 2, it says that the husband of one wife, covenant keeping, did not Jesus keep covenant with Israel and the church and seals a new covenant on the cross so that in Hebrews 13.5, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. When tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He brought his passions under the subjection of the word of God and subdued his flesh. Hospitable. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm preparing a room in my house for you. Verse 3, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. In Matthew 27, Pilate said to Jesus moments before the cross, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 6, don't be puffed up with conceit. John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. The Son of God, with omnipotence at his fingertips, did not allow that to puff him up. What reason do you have to be puffed up? Or me? Do we walk with God? Does our walk evidence and paint a beautiful portrait of Christ? May I do that. May you expect that of me. And in all love, I expect that of you. May we expect that of one another. Not without grace that we don't make mistakes. We need to be quick to forgive and confess. But may we be a people who walk with God.
Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, our inadequacies are before us. And so in prayer, we advertise our dependence on you and say we need you. As we look at these evidences of a godly walk in 1 Timothy 3, these are evidences that all of us are called to. May we not forsake being a church of godly people, walking in a godly way, not in religious conceit, but in humility, saying, not I, but Christ. In our conduct in the home and outside the home, in our marriages, in our words that we say, May we paint Christ with our lives. If there is someone here who does not know you, has not put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would say, I need a Savior. And if that is you this morning, you know you have no walk with God. Oh, people may think you do, or maybe you really don't, and everybody knows it either way. Brothers, sister, friends, call out to Jesus this morning. You can do it right now in your seat or we'd love to talk with you up here at the front and share with you from God's word how you might be saved. Now, Father, help us, I pray, as a church to live godly lives here in Lynchburg. May we live godly lives to the uttermost parts of the earth for the glory of the name of Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.